0: Let me open us up in a word of prayer. We'll pray for the Lord's help, and then we will begin. Father, I thank you for your kindness to us. It is displayed in so many ways. I marvel that you continue to bring the rain upon the just and the unjust. And Father, as I look into your word, and as I see your standard for our life, I see how much I fall short. I I don't love people the way that that Jesus does. I don't serve the way Jesus did. I don't love you with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. Lord, even my best efforts fall short. So, Father, I know that I speak for those who are here. We are so thankful for Jesus, who died in our place and who lived in our place. And it's because of him that all of these glorious truths that we're going to talk about tonight are real. And Father, I pray against the mental fog. Some of us may be tired or sleepy. I pray, Father, that you would draw our hearts in, that your word would capture our attention that you would give us a curiosity in our minds so that we would start asking questions and be honest about the things we don't know or the things we don't understand so that we would know your word better. Lord, my prayer has been that in this class, as, as it concludes tonight, Lord, just that we would become better readers of your word. So Lord, would you accomplish that? We'll trust you for it. We ask these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, tonight is the final week in this series that we have called The Big Story, walking our way through the Bible, trying to give some big hooks on what God has been doing as He unfolds the plan of Revelation. Remember, one of the big premises about this class is that the Bible should not be read flatly. In other words, we have to read. Differently in different places of the scripture, not just because there's different genres, different types of literature, right? You read Daniel 9, very different than Numbers 1, and very different than Revelation 22, and very different from Romans chapter 1, as many of our ladies are studying. They're very different. And if you read it in the same way, you're going to be very frustrated, and your conclusions are going to be weird or wrong or not helpful. And we don't want any of those things. We want to be good students of God's word talk with people all the time and they know that I like books and and just just as a way of encouragement if you're a Christian God's primary means of communication to you is through a book we are people of the book so if you don't like to read God gave us a book, right? So we need to learn to like to read and to think and to try to process some of this information. This book is massive and it's infinitely deep. And we want to give our lives to understanding it so that we can know God. Tonight we're coming to the eighth. If you have a chart, you can see we're on that final eighth column. No surprises. You got the answers there for you. But we are coming to the perfected kingdom. So we are fast forwarding. We are looking into the future where God is going to perfect all and complete all of his work in bringing the kingdom to us. It can be very hard. I think I, I, I talk about this a lot. I, I pray about it. There's just there's just this sluggishness. We heard a sermon this morning about the glories of what God is going to do, and how many of us were tempted to be like, huh? Right? Who went home this afternoon and just sat there with their mind just racing about all the incredible glories that we heard about? Right? We are creatures that are stuck in bodies and stuck in time and we're so used to the same thing that we struggle to realize that there will be a day, a day that has weather, a day that is in a certain season, a day where there's events where it's all going to end. When you think about that, we may be here, we may not be here, but that, so there's either a day where you're going to die or there's a day where Jesus is coming Back. Everything in your life leads up to that. And we get so confused living our lives and spending our efforts as if other things were more important. But one of these days, he is coming. And he's actually going to come. One of the ways that we can be sure of this, one of the ways that we can condition our hearts for this, is we can look back to that first period of waiting. You remember, if you read the prophets, there's agony in their voice. They're begging, wondering, when is God going to come? I love reading Zechariah, right? About the longing. When is, when is he going to come? And then one day he came. He came. And the angels proclaimed him. Well, that day is going to happen again. And when it does, we will move into the final period of history, at least for our purposes. I don't know what God has in store. But we will move into the final period of history, and for us, we're calling it the perfected kingdom. When God consummates or completes all of his purposes for the kingdom. We're going to spend our time tonight in the book of Revelation. It's fitting that we've been studying this book in Sunday morning services, nearing, I guess, if drawn out over more than... I guess about a year or so. I was teasing Mark this morning. I poked him. I said, "So you're going to spend five weeks in the last chapter? Is that what you're going to do? That's what I would do." Uh, he's slowing down here at the end. We've been studying it for such a long time, and especially if you've missed some or you know fallen asleep or whatever, right? It's easy to lose sight of the big picture. So we're going to do a quick overview tonight. This is the fast forward version of Revelation. This is the last book in the Bible written by the apostle John during an extreme time of persecution. So much so that John was exiled to an island, right? Patmos where he saw a number of visions. And as you likely know, this book is not written like a love letter from God. It's not written like Paul's mind-boggling epistles, right? It's, it's different. It's apocalyptic literature, which means that it's heavy with symbolism, right? And one of the primary purposes of these visions is, even if you can't sort through all the symbolism, which I cannot okay, just so you know, I can't do, I'm not there yet, we still can clearly see it's given to us as believers, even if we don't understand it all, as strength to persevere and to live, compelling us to live for this eternal kingdom, which is actually coming. There are a couple of symbols, however, a couple of patterns, a couple of themes that you do not have an excuse for missing, right? You have an excuse. I, I tell some people throw in their hands like, I can't understand any of this. You can't do that, right? This is God's word. You got to work at it. But there's some that we don't really have any excuses for, for missing. I got behind, right? Um, the first one is we should be able to clearly say there is a throne. There's a throne in heaven, right? No matter what, where you fall on the eschatology, that's the big word for last times, so on the last time spectrum, you got to say, "Hey, there's a throne in heaven." You know why? Revelation four two says it right. And once I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven. And it's not empty. There's one seated on the throne. Now, remember, we've been talking all through this study about the idea of a ruler, a king. All right? We're talking about a kingdom. And a kingdom isn't a kingdom without a king. A king doesn't have to have a throne, I suppose. But he's got to have a rule. Well, there is a throne in heaven. And it is a clear reminder to us that it is occupied. There is one who sits on the throne. Notice this is not a throne in Jerusalem among the people of Israel. This is a throne in heaven and it's occupied. Now, if we just stop, just think about what a comfort this is for believers, especially if you are a believer that is suffering or is persecuted. The Bible says that all who desire to live a, a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's what you sign up for, Right. That's how you get God, is through the call of suffering. And this is a comfort for us. Because whether you're suffering for your faith, like a brother from Libya that I just heard of, or whether it's simply because you live in a fallen world, it's good to know that there's one on the throne, isn't it? I don't know about you, but for me, when I look around, it seems kind of hard to find this evidence for God's kingdom. It doesn't seem like it's here. Other wicked people seem to be prospering in their ways. I mean, I was just hearing a report about how secularism has just been wildly successful in the Western world, right? We, have, we haven't really won any of the battles. It's secular, secularism is winning all of them. It can be so tempted to tempting to think that this kingdom, because I don't see it, it's not It's not real. But with eyes of faith, we can indeed see that there is a throne, and Jesus is seated upon that throne. I was reading uh, about an illustration of this, and the story goes like this. Imagine that you're walking on a beach, and uh, you're walking... You're walking um, up the beach and you look out to the shore and you hear someone screaming out for help and you look out and you see a woman who's sort of flailing her arms. And somehow, I don't know how this would work, but it's my illustration, you see a shark that is also coming towards this woman. So the woman's screaming, the shark is coming, and somebody in the background with a tuba is playing dun dun I don't know if that's a tuba. I guess it's just a keyboard, right? Dun. And and, and, and you, you freak out and you say, Someone's gotta help this person, right? And you start running down the beach. And as you run down the beach, you come upon this scene where there's all these movie cameras and there's this big you know black chair that's got the word director on the back and there's someone that's sit- sitting on it and he's got a megaphone about his works and he is like yelling out instructions And all of a sudden what happens you you real okay the, you stumbled onto a movie set and you understand the director has got all of this under control so you don't need to worry well church there's a director in heaven And he has it all under control. You may not understand what he's doing, but look at the chair. There's a throne in heaven. Now, when it comes to interpreting the book of Revelation, we should say that we need to be humble, right? There are a lot of very smart, a lot smarter than you and me, a lot smarter than people you know, very seriously minded people that have tried and disagree about how to interpret Revelation. So whenever you meet some hack who spent 20 minutes trying to figure it out and he claims he's got it all sorted out, you should, you know, keep on your merry way. Now, I mostly agree with Mark's interpretation of Revelation. I'm evolving, right? Can I say that word in church? I'm evolving. I'm trying trying to sort all this out. I have switched my positions a few times over the years, uh, humbly, trying to sort this out. I'm not going to go through all the, the views that I've got listed down here. But I think we should say this. Revelation is not intended to be a time chart. Right, it is not primarily given to us as this script that we can look forward and know exactly how such and such is going to, you know, is going to fall. It is not intended to do that. However, um, and, and I'm skipping some stuff here for time. Um, As Mark has said, Revelation does have this series of repeating sequences. I don't know if you think back to, I guess, last fall when he started talking about this. I guess before that. Uh, Summer? When did he start? Summer? Yeah. May the 1st. There you go. Man. All right. There, there are these repeating sequences. We've seen seven seals and seven trumpets and, and seven bowls. And I completely agree that they are to be interpreted in parallel. They're not chronological. They're not sequential. But they describe the same period. So broadly speaking, we could say something like this. For example, the image of the four horsemen, they, do not, they represent the aggression and the bloodshed that will mark all of the ages between Christ's ascension, his first one, and the return, the last days, as we talked about last time. And then we come to the last several chapters of the book and we actually fast forward and look to the end of time where we will see that Jesus actually destroys evil and then establishes his kingdom and his new creation. So the key thing to note is this, it, it's almost like a, a circle, right? It, it's repeating, it's interpreting itself, it's, it's to be layered on top of itself. Perhaps you've seen, I don't, we don't have cables so we don't have to watch these anymore, but the guy that cuts my hair, I go in and this show's usually on and I just get mesmerized. You've seen the show where they, they do the home remodels, you know? It's like they show you this dump of a house and then with like $25,000, they can make it a million dollar house. You know what I mean? I, I know they got something funny going on with those because I'm like, if I took my $25,000, it would not look like that, right? Okay, but, but you get how those things work. You, you, have, uh, you have some... Uh, Apparently, very good looking people who are in construction. And they go and they take down all the old stuff. Right they, they tear down the wall, they rip up the floors, they pull out the linoleum, and you know bust out the cabinet which you're an idiot for picking, right, and they make you feel bad about it, and they, they tear all that stuff out and the key is is that the new materials won't come until the old materials are already gone and out of the way, right? You would not want to put your new like velvet I don't know if they do vel- velvet couch in a room where they're sanding sheetrock, right? obviously that would, that would not you don't want to be in a room where they're sanding. She rock, no it's been my experience but but the new doesn't come until the old is gone right it's the, it's the phrase out with the old and in with the new we see that's God's plan for restoring the world that's a helpful picture for us God will not introduce the new creation until he removes the old that means every trace of sin that has spoiled his world has got to go He's got to sort it out. He's got to take care of it. (coughs) Excuse me. Like sneezes. Is that a part of the old or the new? You see, before God creates the new heavens and the earth, He's going to remove every power of evil and every trace of its its old reign. And He's going to begin, fittingly, with Satan himself. In Revelation 17, chapter 17 through 20, we, desc- we see how God is describing how he will accomplish this. And this is where we need to pay attention to a very important phrase because this links so much of the Bible together. Let's f- talk about the fall of Babylon. Look at Revelation 17, verse 1, right? Here we're introduced to a woman That the text identifies as the great prostitute. It's not a nickname I'd recommend for your toddler, if you got to tell her, right? That's not something you want to be called, right? The great prostitute. Elsewhere is called Babylon the Great, which helps us understand that this is obviously a symbol. Another some interpreters describe this image as being the mother of all prostitutes. It's very graphic. But look at what chapter 17, verse 1 says. Then one of these seven angels who had the seven bowls said to me, Come, and I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters. Okay? Now, I, don't, I can't fit all these on here, but this is re- referring, and if you read the whole chapter, to Babylon. Babylon. The prostitute and Babylon are the same image. Now, how can you have a prostitute in a city be the same thing? Unless it's revelation and there's symbols that are, that are connecting together. Now, now, think about it. We've seen Babylon before. You got to know some basic Bible history to put some of the Bible together. Remember, let's even go back further. Do you remember we did this in our current study? You remember Genesis chapter 11 and the tower of what? Oh man, that sounds a lot like Babylon. Did you know that Babylon was built on top of the location of the Tower of Babel? Well, that's because Babylon is representative of what took place at Babel, right? It's it's the very symbol of human arrogance and pride. We don't need God. We can do it ourselves, And that was continued even to the city, which is where Daniel and his comrades found found themselves during the Babylonian captivity. So Babylon was built on top, the capital city was built on top of the mighty empire that would eventually overthrow Judah. They destroyed God's temple, right, which we've said is God's place, and they took the people into exile. Hopefully these are triggering bigger pictures for you, not just small ones as before. Babylon was an actual city, but the way John uses this name makes it very clear that Babylon is not referring to a specific city, but rather all the parts of non-Christian society. All the parts of society that are anti-God and that are opposed to God. The organization of humanity around something other than God. That's Babylon. Babylon is the world. Well, John calls her a prostitute. Because it's with the kings of the earth that if she has committed sexual immorality in verse 2, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. Now this is referring to primarily spiritual Immorality the, I'm having to summarize it here because there's lots of images in this whole chapter um, I tried to give one verse to you to be representative, but it's not enough It's it's referring not just to sexual immorality, but that's part of it But even bigger to being spiritual adultery spiritual immorality. They have loved someone other than God the groom Babylon seduces Many in the world to live for her To live for her and not for the one true God. Oh, church, are we being seduced to live for Babylon? In what ways? What ways does Babylon have a pull upon you? But we're called to resist Babylon. Just like Judah, who is exiled in Babylon, you remember? In the 6th century, we too are exiled in Babylon. Does that make sense? So, I'm using spiritual language to describe from from an actual historical event. I'll say it again. Just like Judah, that was literally and historically exiled in Babylon, we too, the church, are spiritually exiled in a spiritual Babylon. We belong in heaven. That's why Peter calls us exiles. But where do we live? In Babylon for a while. We, too, will often be tempted to go to bed with the prostitute or to give in to her prevailing spirit. But we must remember the realities of Revelation 18. She's headed for destruction. Chapter 18 describes the fall of Babylon, and it's a fall that we as the church, the people of God, should cheer Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons. A haunt for every unclean spirit and every unclean bird. A haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. And then again in 1821. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a millstone and threw it into the sea saying, So will Babylon the great be thrown down with violence. And will be found no more. God will completely and utterly destroy all of the remnants of the society that is opposed to God. Okay, again, understand this is not just American culture. This is not just Persian culture. This is not African culture. This is humanity. He's going to destroy it all. This is a total and comprehensive judgment on human society that lives independent from God. So parents, when your children are rebelling against you and telling you their way, part of what we are doing when we discipline and teach and correct is we are pleading with them, don't live for Babylon. You don't say that. That would be very confusing. But you're pleading with them, this is dangerous. This is not just about my afternoon going better. I'm pleading with you. See the dangers of the world, son. See the dangers of Babylon. It's going to collapse. In an instant, in all who have invested all of their life around the systems of Babylon are going to weep. It's going to be gone in a moment. Revelation eighteen ten says they'll stand far off in fear of her torment and they'll say, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. It's the picture of your whole life and everything you've ever lived for and worked for. Just gone in a moment. And what's worse, it's not like you can recover. Hell is all that awaits. Don't live for Babylon. She's headed for the sea and for destruction. There are many other images in Revelation, as you know. The beast, which I believe, as Mark has explained, that is referring to worldly anti-Christian powers. And the false prophet, which is a worldly anti-Christian message or ideology, which can be in so many different ways. And then, of course, Satan, they are all thrown into the lake of fire, which represents total separation and death. Separation from God. The key image for us is this. All who refuse God's rule, who cannot be a part of God's kingdom, If you refuse God's rule, you cannot be a part of God's kingdom. So think about how this helps us in sanctification, right? If you are a believer in Christ, you have said, hey, I am for God's rule. I want to submit my life to him. But you struggle, don't you? I struggle. I've got this selfishness in my heart that wants to live for Nathan. I struggle with it, right? And when I give in to that, I'm giving this confused picture to the world. I'm living for God's kingdom, but I'm living for Nathan. Well, that doesn't make sense. Our sanctification is is working out the identity that has been given to us by Christ. So I repent. I apologize to my wife. I apologize to my kids and my church and my family. I'm, I'm so sorry. I'm learning. I'm learning. I want, to, I want to be like Jesus. I'm so thankful for Jesus, right? So we want to live consistent with this new ethic. What citizens of the new Jerusalem, what do we live like? Do you see how that compels you away from sin? Away from the world? To be like Christ? I got off track. You see, God has determined that nothing would be allowed to destroy his new creation. No sin, no selfishness, no perversion. It's not going to be let in. So that means judgment for all who are opposed to God's rule. Now, judgment is terrible. It is certainly terrible. But is it not also good news for us? It is the final destruction of evil. The final destruction of evil. Which means that now salvation can be completed. So now that the destructive and corruptive wicked powers of old Babylon are destroyed. Now we can see that God is ready in Revelation 22 and twenty. 21 and 22 to establish his new world. The stage is now set. It's ready for God to complete his work of salvation that we've been anticipating all the way from back in Genesis chapter 3. Now there are a lot of images that are used to describe this new world and I'm going to just talk about three of them tonight. The new creation, the new Jerusalem, and the new temple let's look first at the new creation then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth heaven and earth what's that sound like what's that remind you of in the beginning God created the and the okay right heavens so we got a new one of those a new one of those the old the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more You see, God has plans to completely establish, to establish a completely new creation, right? Heavens and earth is referring to the fact that there's sky and land, I believe, in this context. It's not clouds floating around, not some urethral place where you float on wings and feel silly and shoot arrows or whatever, right? We're talking about a physical place. Since God made everything, he's the creator That means that he cares about his creation. He's not going to abandon it. He's going to fix it. And since sin has affected everything, every part of creation. We were explaining to my daughter the other day as we pulled a thorn out of her finger. This is because of sin. And in the new heavens and the new earth, there will be no thorns because there will be no sin. What a wonderful thought. There will be no death and no decay. Since sin has affected everything, God is going to fix it all. God is not simply determined to redeem the souls of humanity, but also our bodies and also our environment, creation. He's going to redeem it all. I believe there'll be dogs in heaven. Not my dog, but dogs, right? Because that's part of the creation. I don't know about cats. I'm not sure. I don't they're thorns or I don't. I don't. Okay. Whatever. Cats. Cats. The the key thing for us to understand, though, is that we will be a physical people in a physical place. A physical people in a physical place. I'm not talking about the intermediate state. I'm talking about when the new heavens and the new earth are created. We will be a physical people in a physical place. One of the key texts to understand this is in Romans chapter 8. Listen to how it talks about what's going on now. The creation waits with eager, it's the whole creation, with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willing, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from the bondage to corruption or decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God you see that? The creation is going to be pulled in to the glory that the children of God get. And the freedom that the children of God get. It's a picture of all of creation groaning and longing, eager for this time. Where the cycle of life will not end in death. Where there will be no decay, no hurricanes, no destructive natural disasters. Because in the new heaven and the new earth, nothing that destroys will be allowed in. Not even a germ. Nothing that spoils will be a part of life in our new heaven and new earth. This is why Revelation 21 makes sense. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Amen. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore, for those are the former things. Those are gone, passed away. To really get a feel for the significance of this, we really need to think back to the beginning of our study at the pattern in kingdom, in Eden. Right, back in Genesis, where the Bible begins with a picture of how God intended for the world to be. You remember that's one of the things we said from the beginning. You can see the pattern there. God's people, who are God's people in the in the in the uh, in the pattern. Adam and Eve, okay, and they were in God's place, which is where Eden, right? And they were with God, so they enjoyed God's rule. They lived in harmony with creations, perfect shalom. And then that peace was destroyed, but do you remember how the prophets looked ahead and how they richly described and prophesied what the new heaven and new earth will be like? Do you remember that the infant will play in a cobra's hole? We walked by, we went to, my wife and I went to Bayes Mountain the other day. She saw a fake picture of a snake, which I warned her about, and she still jumped, Right? The thought of our daughter playing in a snake's den is anathema to her, right? And me—I don't like snakes either, right? People that like snakes, okay? That's never. Mind. I don't understand. Cats are better than snakes, barely, barely. What am I doing? Okay. Infant, the infant will play by the cobra's hole. The picture is an infant will be able to put its hand into the viper's den. Complete safety. Can you imagine? Have you ever tried to imagine a world where there's no danger? No, no risk of loss? No risk of pain? No risk of conflict in a relationship? what we were made to enjoy. There, the wolf and the lion and the lamb, they're all having the same menu. Grass. I'm not eating grass, I hope, but that's what they're eating side by side. There will be a world with no violence, a world with no danger, and it'll all be fulfilled when Eden is restored. As we're seeing right now on Sunday mornings, Revelation 22 is full of these images from Eden. It's like it took all of its ideas from Eden, the landmarks from Eden. Look at Revelation 22, 1 through 3. The angel showed me the river of the water of life. Does that sound familiar? Right? Where was there a river? In Eden, also Ezekiel 40 to 48, if you remember the prophesied kingdom, the river, rivers flow, uh, rivers are central in the scriptures, right? There's a river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God. What does that make you think of? Again, Ezekiel 40 to 48. And a land through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life. Well, where have we seen a tree of life? Eden, right? With 12 kinds of fruit, yielding the fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were the healings for the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed. But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And his servants will worship him. Do you see we have a river? We have a garden? We have a tree of life. Eden is going to be recreated. The new creation. The second image is that of the new Jerusalem. This might be newer for us than perhaps the new creation. In Revelation 21, again Mark has been describing this, verse 2, And then I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Wait, so God's marrying a city? Yeah. He's marrying a city. Now remember, we just saw a city. What city do we just see? Babylon. What happened to Babylon? Destroyed, right? It's the tale of two cities. One city is destroyed. Now we're seeing a city coming down for heaven. Where is your citizenship? Are you going to live? like which, which, which city do you live like you belong to? That's a question that the apostles seem to be asking again and again. But think about the image of a city. Think about what that entails. I'm not a city boy, okay? I know a lot of you are not city, city folks either. We like it. We like our space. I like hearing roosters and cows, okay? But in the Bible, the city is the picture of where people flourish, right? We often think of the country as being, you know, an idyllic place, but, but God's goal, it doesn't work for the country, and here's why. Because God's goal for creation is community, not isolation. We like the country because we don't have to deal with all those crazy people, right? That's why you want your space, so your neighbor can't get too close. Well, if there's no sin, it doesn't matter if your neighbor's close, because number one, you're going to be kind and love the way you should. And number two, he's going to be kind and love like you should. And so you're going to have this great relationship. It's totally different. I mean, can you imagine a community without sin? Can you imagine what your marriage would be like without sin? Can you imagine the intimacy and the joy and the happiness you will share together when there's no selfishness to get in the way of it? The most intimate, happiest relationship you've ever known is marked by sin. And that will be gone. God's goal is not isolation, but a community. Well, who is going to be there? This can be helpful for us to think about. In Revelation chapter 7, I think I've got a lot of this for you, we see this number 144,000. And this is where some folks get very creative in their interpretations. But let's read this text. Now what I did is I, I put a dot, dot, dot. It goes through and describes 12,000 from the tribes of every one of the tribes of Israel. So i am just gonna, I got one in here. I heard the number of the seal, the 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed. And then it goes through all 12. And then it says, and this is Revelation 7 after this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation from all the tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands oh here's the text there we go there's the reference 144,000 what does that mean Well, I believe that 144,000, that number represents the totality of God's people. In other words, all believers. We see 12,000 from each tribe. The text goes through painstaking detail to explain that. Which, if you've been following along with my argument, I would argue since God is making a new Israel, we, his people, are the new Israel that we see this image of 12,000 from each tribe, a a picture of completion, right? In other words, no one is missing. He will bring home all of his people. One of the great clues for this, I think, um, that we don't take this number literally, as some some do, is look what the text says. It says, a great multitude that no one could count. Well, if it's 144,000, we could count that, right? I mean, if you had enough patience... But it's giving a picture of this is a number, it's myriad. It's like, this, like the stars or the sand on the shore. In other words, we're reading about how the city will have believers from all ages and every race and both genders and all nationalities. It's like the world before Babel. God is undoing the curse. This is God's new multi-ethnic community. If I could just pause and say this is a reminder for us of why racism is so wrong. It's part of Babylon. It's going to be thrown into the sea. It is anti-heaven. And it's anti-church and it's anti-kingdom of God. So you can read my thoughts on that in the newsletter if you like. But it's a reminder to us, in heaven there will be blacks and whites side by side praising the Lord. There will be Arabs and Jews side by side praising the Lord. The church, we're to be a reflection of this now, which is why racism makes no sense for the people of God. That's the new Jerusalem. But we have a third image, and that's the image of the new temple. Revelation 21, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is where? With man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Now again, we need to think back on some of our old images for this to have richness for us, right? Do you remember the Old Testament tabernacle and the temple, right? That was how God lived among his people. In a very very special place with all the ceremonial stuff very precious metal very special important people wearing important clothes and they would kill a bunch of animals and they would have all these special washings and all these sacrifice all this stuff going on and what do you remember about that temple well first of all it was destroyed by the babylons babylonians it's gone never to be fully rebuilt but remember how Ezekiel is talking about a new temple, promising a new temple, a bigger, a better, a greater one that had a, lot, had a water problem, right? Had a river flowing out of it. This promise was fulfilled, as we saw a couple weeks ago, in Jesus. Jesus In his life and death and resurrection, he is that new temple. That's what he told. He literally said it. When he went through and turned over all the uh, tables in the temple, and they said, How do you have a right to do this? And what did he tell the Pharisees? He says, I'll prove it to you. I'll tear down this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. I think that's John 8. I'm not sure. Right? The picture is what? He's he's replacing the temple. He is the temple. As we also have seen, we enjoy the presence of God through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us now. And as we saw hurriedly, I think last week, we also see that the church is God's temple, God's place on earth. God dwells among, not just in one Christian, but among his people. Because where two or three are gathered, he is with us, right? But... Can we just be honest? I've enjoyed the presence of God through reading the scriptures and through singing, and I've enjoyed worshiping with you, but can we all just say, I really want more, (laughs) right? We really long for more. This is a very limited, very imperfect experience. And then, of course, as Pastor Mark has said so many times, this city that John sees coming down out of heaven and it has dimensions. And it's what, Terry? It's a a cube, right? It's a perfect cube, which is just like the Holy of Holies, where God dwelt with his presence among his people in a very, very small place. His, His presence was most intensely realized, and it was very, very small, and it would leave sometimes, It was restricted. Only one man, one time a year, could go there at great risk of his life. Now what do you see? God's presence is everywhere. It's in the whole city. Because the whole city is the Holy of Holies. This whole city. The text says that it's a cube which is about 12, it's 12,000 stadia wide, which is some, it's between 13,080 and 15, or 1,380 miles and 1,500 miles, which uh, some commentators say that's, that's about how big John's known world was. That's like to Rome. So in other words, I think that's a pretty convincing argument. It's, it's as big as the whole world. In other words, it's the whole world, which would make sense with our broader understanding of this text. In other words, there will no longer be a special place for God's glory to dwell. It will be among his people. Because the whole place is his temple. That's why we read Revelation 22, 22, the very end of the Bible, there's no temple in the city. For the temple is the Lord, the Almighty, and the Lamb. (laughs) my goodness if it's not sound problems it's allergy problems the picture here is that there will be no distance between us and god we will know him perfectly think about the people that you want to know the most you can feel that friction that tension that distance between you think about how you feel that with the lord Times, I mean, do you have have periods in your life where you're just apathetic? No more. He will be with us. So this allows us to complete our chart. God's people, this is all believers from every nation, trust Christ. And in God's place, united together in a new creation, a new Jerusalem, which is the new temple. And God's rule is him. He, we see the throne is there. The throne of the Lamb. And all the people who gladly submit to God's rule, therefore they know his perfect blessing. And do you remember how the picture, let me read this for you, in Revelation 22, verse 1, I don't have it up here, but the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from what? the throne. There's a river flowing from the throne because it's distributing the blessings of life and prosperity for everyone. Church, this is coming. It's not fulfilled yet, but it is coming. So as we come to the end of our study, I want to conclude with one more point for you on how you should be thinking about this. We've been trying to see how all the scriptures point to and are fulfilled in Christ, who brought the kingdom of God. As Mark said this morning, Mark 1:15. he brought the kingdom of God. And the goal for this study has not been to give us bigger heads, but bigger hearts, and therefore smaller heads, humble spirits. Humility, not knowledge that puffs up. And so to do that, we want to read on two dimensions. I think this is helpful for us to think about. One is a historical or a horizontal dimension, which is the historical side. This is, this is asking when you're reading the scriptures, where have we come from? Where have we come from, what has happened in the story before us, and where are we now? What is coming next? When you're in the Old Testament, you're going to be asking, okay, how do I need to anticipate Christ? How does this text look forward to Christ? You don't, forge, you don't cram it in there, right? You've got to be careful. How does the text anticipate Christ? And if you're in the New Testament, you want to think back. This is why you need to know the storyline. How is this fulfilling what has come before But we don't want to only do this horizontal part. We don't want to only pay attention to the history. But we also want to think about the relational aspect of this. We want to take the horizontal seriously. But there's a great danger. There's a great danger for me in my preparation, in my reading and learning. To miss God and get the Bible. We can't really do that right. It doesn't make sense. I feel like a lot of times when I'm preaching Samuel, when we read the text, we can be tempted to jump too quickly to Jesus. If your class does the gospel project, you might feel this tension sometimes. But think about it like this. When David said, remember, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, what do we know about that text? Well, it's anticipating Jesus because Jesus quoted it while he was on the cross, But David also quoted that in his circumstances. We don't want to skip David and skip that circumstance and go straight to Jesus so quickly that we blow past the Old Testament and forget that God actually worked in David's circumstance. We need to learn from that dimension. God is the hero of the Bible. So no matter where we are reading, we want to learn about him and how we should respond to him. That means that when we're reading about the Exodus, we should be actually concerned about how God actually delivered a literal nation from physical, literal slavery, not simply foreshadowing the great Exodus that we will enjoy, where we're freed from the tyranny of sin. So the big question that that gives us is, what does this passage tell me about God? It's the other big question for us. What does this passage tell? tell me about God. We want to let each text speak on its own right before we consider how it jumps to Christ. Every text in the scriptures will tell us something about God, which means that it says something about how we should relate to God. So let me encourage you, consider both horizons, asking, where am I in the Bible storyline? How does this anticipate what's coming? How does this fulfill what has already happened? How is this looking forward? But also, what does this passage tell me about God? At the end of the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is on the road to Emmaus, and he's speaking, and he's describing, and the text says, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets... The risen Lord interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. I can't imagine what that conversation must have been like. But I hope that after this study, you will be better equipped to understand the Bible better, to have that kind of Jesus, full picture, resurrected Lord understanding of the Bible, that you might understand it better in order to understand God better. So I'm praying for you in your Bible reading. Let it be true of us that we are a people of the book who know God by his word. Let me close this in prayer. Father, we praise you and thank you that you've preserved your word for us, that you've given us the scriptures. And Lord, I pray for each person here and myself, Lord, that we would never be bored by your word. We know that whenever that is the case, the problem's not with you, it's with us. So help us. Ignite fire in our hearts to know and understand and read your word and to take it seriously. Help us to be a people who bleed Bible and who long to know you and submit ourselves to you. We ask these things in the name of Christ, our Lord and our King who is seated on the throne. Amen. You're dismissed, church. Go in peace.